Welcome everyone to episode 34 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. We're going to start off this week with a story from The Nightshirt at thenightshirt.com. This is entitled, In Defense of Water Witches. In 2017, a couple in Stratford-upon-Avon, England, requested that a technician from Severn Trent, the water company that serves their region, come out to replace the water line to their house from the main under the street. First, he had to locate the buried pipe, and the couple were surprised to see the technician walk over the street with a couple of bent rods. Woe to the water witch in the age of social media. The couple, perplexed and amused to see this spectacle, announced it on their family WhatsApp group, where it seized the attention of their daughter, Sally LePage, an evolutionary biologist at Oxford. LePage tweeted Severn Trent, Why, at ST Water in 2017, are you using divining rods to find the location of underwater pipes when there is zero evidence they work? The response from the company was, We've found that some of the older methods are just as effective as the new ones, but we do use drones as well, and now satellites, and referred LePage to a website for more information on their methods. When LePage doubled down on her incredulity, the water company was more than happy to elaborate. We do have some techs that still have them in the van and use them if they need to. However, we prefer to use listening sticks and other methods. In an article she wrote for Medium, LePage writes that she then contacted 11 other major water companies in the UK, asking them whether they employed dousing, and all but two admitted that their technicians sometimes doused for buried pipes, even though they mostly relied upon approved higher-tech methods. Her response pulled no punches. Quote, I can't state this enough. There is no scientifically rigorous, doubly blind evidence that divining rods work. That's how my scientist side would describe it. My non-scientist side would describe it thus. Divining rods do not and will not work. Even now, any explanations of water dousing rely on the supernatural. And in 2017, I am astonished to find two water companies relying on and paying for the supernatural to find underground pipes. End quote. LePage's extraction of an admission from 21st century utilities that they sometimes use a scientifically unsupported practice invented 450 years ago sparked a furor among UK skeptics and a flurry of reports in The Guardian and other media outlets. One Leeds University water management specialist quoted in The Guardian decried the use of peculiar medieval witchcraft practices by these companies. Science writer Philip Ball lent his voice to the chorus lamenting the lack of scientific understanding among even high-tech businesses like water companies. It's not impossible that an unknown law of physics is being profitably exploited by Severn Trent Water, but hopefully we can agree the likelihood is small. 
This outcry, in turn, provoked anxious and defensive tweets from the utility companies trying to put out what had become a PR disaster. They assured the skeptics that they did not approve of dousing, and that it was only some backward rogue engineers who still occasionally used the technique. Interestingly, LePage never says whether the dousing water engineer found the pipe leading to her parents' house. She does not complain that Severn Trent Water dug up the street in front of her folks' house and came up empty-handed, which would have added a certain substance to her complaints. Unscientific Certainty Every year or so, dousing rises briefly to the attention of the mainstream media. Lois Parsley wrote a decently balanced piece in Aon in 2015 about farmers' use of dousers in drought parts central California. What prompted me to finally write this post was an article by Sasha von Oldershausen in The Atlantic last month, profiling a water witch working for an oil company in Texas. At best, as in these two pieces, it will just be noted how at odds dousing is with modern science, without the authors explicitly passing judgment. But, at worst, as in LePage's article and other opinion pieces prompted by the UK case, authors heap condescension on the practice and imply that its practitioners and other believers are denizens of Carl Sagan's demon-haunted world. Explanations for dowsing vary widely, and when confined to the stereotypical business of wandering over a landscape with a forked branch or bent metal rods, people's minds may naturally go in various directions, depending on their prior level of skepticism. If they don't dismiss it as nonsense, they may reasonably think it is a matter of the dowser translating some kind of unconscious, but not paranormal, intuition about the landscape into subtle hand movements. Lay people without any dog in the fight might assume it involves some subtle energetic tug of buried water on the branch or rods. Something like that latter mental image, waves of some sort or perhaps some magnetic-like influence emanating from the ground, appears the earliest attempts to scientifically justify the practice and is probably how skeptics like LePage imagine that most believers still imagine dowsing works. I would venture that such an image is the basis for her self-admittedly non-scientific certitude that dowsing rods do not and will not work. But consider my favorite of the when impossible things happen to people with PhDs genre, the late Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer's wonderful book, Extraordinary Knowing. Mayer, a prominent Oakland, California psychotherapist, begins her book by relating her own experience with dowsing, which was so compelling that it drove her to devote years to researching psi phenomena. In 1991, her daughter had her prized harp stolen from a theater after a Christmas concert. She got no help from the police or even the local news media in recovering the valuable instrument for her distraught daughter, so a friend convinced her to try contacting a dowser. Figuring she had nothing to lose, Mayer agreed to try a paranormal solution to her problem, so the friend gave her the phone number of Harold McCoy, the then president of the American Society of Dowsers in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Mayer reluctantly placed a long-distance call to McCoy by now, two months after the harp had been stolen, and after a moment's thought, the dowser was able to tell her the harp was still in Oakland. 
Send me a street map of Oakland, and I'll locate the harp for you, he said. She complied, and two days later, McCoy called Mayer with the directions to find the house that contained the stolen instrument. The police could not get a search warrant for the house simply on the basis of a dowser's word, so Mayer posted flyers on the surrounding street corners, offering a reward for the return of the harp. After three days, a series of phone calls from the neighbor of the person in possession of the harp resulted in its delivery to her in a hurried late-night rendezvous behind an all-night Safeway. The reactions of LePage, Ball, or any number of skeptics to a story like this are easy to imagine. The usual smug eye-rolling about confirmation bias, the law of large numbers, etc., If a scientifically educated person cannot accept those waves emanating from buried water pipes, how could they countenance such waves reaching from a lost harp in California across most of a continent to an Arkansas dowser's hands holding a pendulum over a map of Oakland? Dowsing really doesn't make much scientific sense when we think of it as a problem of influences extending across space. It makes much more sense, though, when we do the counterintuitive thing of thinking of it as an influence extending across time, solely within the mind of the dowser. Dowsing the Future In 2011, the prominent but not controversy-shy Cornell psychologist Daryl Bem published his now-infamous Feeling the Future Findings. Significant evidence from several large experiments that stimuli in the near future can influence present behavior. Most psychologists and many scientists were, you might say, triggered by this provocation and expressed condescending and even snarky outrage since such a thing was obviously impossible. Yet despite a few pseudo-skeptics' claims to the contrary, BIM's results have been replicated by a number of independent researchers and laboratories, a story no one in mainstream psychology wants to hear. BIM's findings were hardly the first to detect precognition. The support for that is massive, statistically. Or even to detect presentiment, unconscious influences of future stimuli. Over two decades ago, Dean Radin pioneered the study of future stimuli on autonomic responses like skin conductance, and by now there is a large and significant body of research just on this phenomenon, as shown by some recent meta-analyses. Anyone fairly assessing the evidence would have to conclude that retrograde influence from future stimuli exists, and that it affects us on an unconscious level, influencing measurable outcomes like heart rate, brainwave activity, quickness to make certain motor responses, and so on. And, as readers of my book, Time Loops, know, there is similarly provocative work just in the last decade from the frontiers of physics and biology attesting to both the reality of retrocausation at a quantum level and the possibility of biological systems scaling up spooky quantum effects. If it turns out the brain is indeed a kind of quantum computer, and this is an active area of research by neuroscientists and cognitive scientists right now, then it is no longer at all ridiculous that animal nervous systems might be able to tap into future rewards. I suggest that's what dousing, when it boils down to it, really is. 
a future reward exerting an unconscious tug on the dowser's present behavior via an automatic or autonomic response. That response has a name, in fact, the ideomotor effect. This was first identified by physical researchers in the 19th century studying mediums. Without our conscious awareness, our thoughts and feelings translate into small muscle movements that can both create an illusion of the body being manipulated by an external entity or force and can be used by another person to be read a sitter's thoughts and feelings. I argue that dowsers holding rods, forked branches, pendulums, or a magnetomatic pipe locator are using this channel to tap into an exciting reward in their near future, finding what they're searching for, or what someone else has hired them to search for. In other words, it is not true that any explanations of water dowsing rely on the supernatural, as LePage claims. The natural is plenty roomy for new kinds of explanations. Subtle Messages from Your Future Self A big reason for parapsychology's sluggishness to consider brain-based precognitive hypotheses as explanations for all sorts of ESP modalities, including dowsing, is the field's historical failure to account for the experiential dimension of psi experiences. This was a gap lamented by pioneer remote viewer Ingo Swan, who felt that the lived experience of doing ESP was a crucial piece of the puzzle, and it is one gap I'm trying to fill with my research. For instance, descriptions of ESP or mediumship experiments almost always leave out any information on how veridical information was confirmed by or to the individual psychic. It simply does not occur to most writers that this may be relevant. They think it's enough to say the psychic was right or that the dowser was successful. However, sometimes in the anecdotal literature, what I call a scene of confirmation is recorded as an afterthought, and this makes such anecdotal accounts priceless for studying these phenomena and how they may actually operate. For instance, Murray offhandedly notes later in her book that after she successfully retrieved her daughter's priceless heart based on the information provided by McCoy, she left an excited message on his answering machine. The dowser, she said, claimed he was not surprised to learn of his success, but who isn't gratified to learn they've done a good job? There's no telling how much Mayer's message on McCoy's answering machine or his emotional reactions to that message might have been the crucial piece of what I'm arguing is really a four-dimensional loop-shaped puzzle. My somewhat reductive hypothesis is that ESP may only work when there will be some form of feedback forthcoming later, or some way of finding out a piece of information that is hidden or missing in the present. In fact, I have come to think of dowsing in its simplicity as the stem cell of ESP phenomena. To invoke a popular idiom used by researchers in the fields of quantum computing, retrocausation, and time travel, the dowser's brain at time point B is post-selecting on a reward, and that future reward is constraining their behavior at time point A to lead to that rewarding outcome. It's probably not exactly a retrograde signal from the brain in the future to the brain now. It's more exactly a correlation. 
but subtle messages from our future self is the easiest way for us non-physicists to think about it. We call it dousing when it involves hunting for natural resources or lost items, when researchers stumble on the exact right page or piece of information in a book, we call it the library angel. When it involves an interaction between a psychic and a client where the interaction itself or later events produce rewarding confirmations or desired information, we call it mediumship. Most generally, it's simply intuition, our basic psychic search function. When I said it goes back at least millennia, I was partly referring to possible images of dowsers in ancient art. A 6th century CE synagogue at Bed Alpha in the Jezreel Valley possibly shows Aquarius holding a forked branch, and a Neolithic rock painting from Tassili, Algeria, has been interpreted as depicting a dowser, although these interpretations are both controversial. But I was also referring to our earliest bacterial ancestors over two billion years ago. Post-selecting on the reward of survival in a few microseconds or milliseconds via quantum computing microtubules would have conferred a small but important selective advantage on motile sphere sheets wriggling through the primordial soup. You could call it dousing for survival. And I suspect this scaling up of quantum retrocausation will turn out to have been a basic factor in the arising of complex living systems. True, we don't yet know all the nuts and bolts of how precognition and presentiment work, either in cells or in people, and the brain-based hypothesis is speculative at this point. But it's not by any means a ridiculous hypothesis. It's ultimately testable and there's no supernatural anywhere to be found in it. Thus, when faced with ancient superstitions being applied by employees at water companies at a fraction of the cost or time as other double-blind proven high-tech tools, scientists and skeptical science writers might want to take a few deep breaths before shooting off their outraged op-eds. Why shouldn't people use all the tools at our disposal? Even the hard-to-understand, uncanny, and inexpensive tool of intuition, which may well stand on firm scientific footing one day in the not-too-distant future. More power to the water witches, I say. called High Strangeness in the Kettle Moraine. And this is written by Tobias Wayland, and it's from the Singular Fortean Society. A bright gibbous moon reflects off the deep Wisconsin snow, illuminating the forest around us and eliminating the need for flashlights. Emily and I are in the Kettle Moraine State Forest with Jay Bakakin, a researcher who's been coming here the last two years in search of Bigfoot. I've been coming here for almost two years, Jay says. I've known about Bigfoot since the 70s. I never, ever believed in Bigfoot. It wasn't until 2013 when I went out in the woods and we kind of heard some real weird simian-type sounds, and we could not go back to the Wisconsin soundboard of all the indigenous animals and identify it. But it sounded simian, and that's when I started going out, and that's when I found the footprints. That's when I had the rocks thrown at me. 
Neither the small parking area nor the trailhead are plowed, but Jay's 4x4 SUV was up to the task of getting us here, and we're dressed for the single-digit February cold, so we trudge intrepidly up the path and deeper into the woods. The trail that led us away from where we parked is buried beneath ankle-deep snow, and we're immediately engulfed in thick rows of pine, cherry, and oak trees to either side. It's here that I first notice the smell. A musky, rotten odor permeates the air, and I assume that something must have died nearby. I don't say anything yet. I want someone else to notice first. It doesn't take long before they do. Our path terminates in a T-intersection with a wider, smoother trail that's been tamped down by cross-country skiers, and we turn left to continue deeper into the forest. You smell that? Jay asks. What do you smell? It smells more like an artificial kind of musk, like a heavy garbage smell, Emily says. The garbage smell isn't like, holy crap, this is a landfill. It's more the air around it. It's kind of fishy. It smells like the dump by my parents' house as you're driving past the landfill, she adds. The smell seems to fluctuate, even as we're discussing it at times overpowering and then suddenly waning to an odorous afterthought. Here's the thing, Jay says. We have sensed this and smelled this out here, and sometimes it's worse than this. I mean, it's enough to make you gag, and then it goes away. Then it comes back. And there's air current here. I get that, but there's really no wind. He's right. There's no wind to speak of out here. If this is an odor emanating from some stationary mass of refuse, then I don't know how it's so seemingly mobile. Take note to see if it follows us, says Jay as we continue along the trail. We hear dogs barking in the distance. There are a few houses dotting the landscape, even out here, and a short time later the high-pitched howl of a coyote echoes through the forest. An odd, low-pitched howl follows it in response. I've never heard that, by the way. Jay says of the low-pitched howl. You can say the lower one, okay, coyote, maybe, but then I've heard so many people and so many accounts of people hearing mimicry. That real low one, that was weird. Wolves possess a lower howl that might explain it, and they do occasionally range this far south, although it's rare. I'm not certain that I find the idea any more comforting than I would a responsive Sasquatch. We stopped halfway through the large loop we're taken through the moraine to gather our wits and catch our breath. Emily has been on edge since we arrived. She says she feels unwelcome, a feeling she attributes to whatever's lurking in the woods. The feeling is the strongest, she says, whenever the smell that's been following us is at its most pungent. It freaks me out, she explains. The smell doesn't scare me. It just happens to be at the same time as the strong feeling of being unwelcome. As we're standing on the trail, talking, a sound like the crack of a large stick striking a tree trunk emanates from within the forest. I hear it coming from behind Jay and Emily, who are standing in front of me, but they say it came from behind me. Sound does funny things in the kettle, and the true origin of the noise is impossible to trace. You heard it too, didn't you? asked Jay. We nodded. Maybe it was a branch giving way under the strain of ice and snow, but it sure sounded like something struck a tree to me. I see something in the trees then. 
A light flashes in the treetops some distance away. It reminds me of a camera flash, and I can see a circular white orb in its center before it disappears. The light is too high up to be a porch light or something similar from a house, and its brief appearance belies that possibility anyway. Nor could a plane explain the appearance, unless it was tiny and flying through the trees. We've seen them, too. We've seen them here for years, says Jay. UFOs and orbs are a regular occurrence out here. We see UFOs out here, too, Jay says. You know how you see a satellite in the summer sky? We got them at plane level, and they fly along with no sound, just watching. And there's no way it's up near the stars because we saw it go off in the distance and then go off through the clouds. So it was in our atmosphere, whatever it was. What else have people seen out here? Lights coming around the corner that are like flashlights, almost like orbs on the trail. He continues, One time near spring, I was up a kettle path near the bottom, and it turned. You could see the trees, and we're sitting there talking, and I'm looking at this orange flashlight coming down the path. I'm like, that's weird. I thought it was a person. I walked down to him right away. We were ready to, you know, meet him. I turned the corner, and there's nothing there. It was the weirdest thing. Jay is a regular visitor to the Kettle Moraine State Forest, all the better to conduct his research. It's his frequent visits that give him the familiarity necessary to help contextualize what we've experienced so far. I try to get out here weekly, he tells us as we follow the trail back to the entrance. You can do a ghost investigation, but when you really go back to that location, six months, a year, but here, I'm out all the time. The vastness of this area gives him plenty to explore, and Jay's intrepidity gives me hope that his hard work will someday pay off. We are in a dot of the kettle, he says. You walk down there and turn yourself around a few times, you're lost. This is a speck of the kettle moraine. It's immense, and people don't get off the beaten path. People stay on the path where it's safe. I can respect that. Here's to not playing it safe, Jay. Happy hunting. Okay, we've got one more story this week, and it's going to run a little bit long, so I've got a couple announcements to get in now. I'm assuming the sound quality on this segment is not great, and the fact of the matter is that's because I forgot to record it before I left the illustrious Curseland Studios back in my shack and had to get on the road again for the week. But this is very important, and I didn't want to miss it. So... The first ever run of Curseland t-shirts are available now. There's a link to these in the show notes for this episode. I'm going to put a link on the website as well. So go have a look at those if you're interested. Um, I haven't ever sold anything like this before. So for this first run, I've tried to keep it really simple. You get a choice of three colors and the Curseland logo is the same on every one of them. Um, I hope I get to expand this line at some point. I've got a couple of ideas for it, but for now, I've just got to start out small because I don't really know what I'm doing. 
Um, if you're on the mailing list, you already know about these. So a special thank you to you all. Um, if you ordered one here in the past few days or so, that order should be on its way to you now. Um, if you want to be on the mailing list, another reminder that that sign-up's in the footer of the website, any page on the website, as always. Um, and hope you all like them. I think that about covers it, so let's soldier on. Whenever you flush a toilet and wash your hands or basically do anything that involves water and a drain, the leftover stuff ends up where I work. It's an often overlooked necessity of any somewhat large town, although I'd almost argue that it's basically just as important as a police station or a fire brigade. There'd be no place to live if the ground was basically inundated with shit all the time and not even considering the extreme environmental impact, it would just be gross. I've worked at a wastewater treatment facility for about 14 and a half years now. I'd have to say that it's arguably one of the best jobs in terms of pay and job security. I'd recommend it to more people if the smell of raw sewage wasn't such a turnoff to most. Although, actually, at least in my mind, it's hardly that bad unless you're standing right next to the main intake line that feeds the waste into the bar screen. It's also important to note that if you've had any water from, well, basically any source, it's probably been through a couple of treatments before. Keep that in mind when taking a nice swig of water after a particularly tough workout or a long day at work. I don't mean to say this to gross anyone out. Frankly, once the water is processed, it's not only clean enough to pump back out into the rivers and creeks, but it's clean enough to drink. I say basically because I don't want to get sued. Please don't drink treated wastewater right out of the filters. Anyway, my 14 years have been, well, interesting to say the least. Most people, after contorting their faces in disgust after I tell them what my job entails, seem to think that it must be incredibly monotonous, and frankly, they wouldn't be wrong. Well, they would only be slightly wrong. I do have to say that every once in a while there's something that you find entangled in the bar screen that really leaves you with a lot of questions. I suppose I should explain how this whole thing works for the sake of clarification before I go any farther. The untreated raw sewage comes in as all a single flow of water. A bar screen is the first real filter. It's essentially a vertical conveyor belt that consists of several horizontal bars that are spaced far enough from each other to catch anything overly large. It also does a rather good job at cleaning out any inorganic material. Wet wipes, condoms, tampons, wads of paper towels, and pieces of plastic are the bulk of what's retrieved in this filter. Its purpose is to take these large and non-organic chunks out of the other bits of sewage, separating them, and allowing the rest of the sewage that continues to be organic, and therefore decomposable. Due to the nature of this filter, most of the strange things I've found were retrieved here, although some of the stuff has continued on to the next parts. After that, it runs through another sort of filter and a similar process happens, although by using a different method. The water is spun at a specific rate, kind of like in a top-loaded washing machine, and as gravity does its work, the heavier stuff settles to the bottom. This stuff, which is mostly just poop, is taken to a warehouse on the property, and with the magic of some chemistry, it's turned into some sort of very nutrient-rich, blackish, clay-like paste. 
It's normally sold to farmers as a better version of manure, and as someone who's used part of it in my own garden, that stuff works better than any miracle Grow I've ever used. Plus, after it's processed, it doesn't even smell like shit anymore. It just smells like wet dirt. After this, the water passes through a bunch of clarifiers, which are basically huge basins. Oxygen is pumped through the water, and as that happens, natural bacteria begin to eat at all the nutrients in the poop water until it's all clear. This is repeated around three times, at least in my facility, and after it's checked for its purity and sterilized with UV rays, it's released back into the river that runs through the town. I snicker to myself whenever I see people fishing and swimming in that river, but like I said before, it's actually pretty clean. Now that I'm done explaining everything, I suppose that I should actually start off. My first freak occurrence happened about a week into the job. I was a fresh-faced biochem major, and even though the smell still made me gag at that point, I was determined to move up the ranks. I got the job thinking I'd be able to climb the corporate ladder, eventually culminating in me being the head chemist. This never happened, but my dreams certainly were a bit optimistic, to say the least. Anyway... As I drove my shitty Mazda MPV down the dirt road towards the main office, I noticed a huge gathering of people around the main intake channel. I initially thought to ignore this, but then I noticed someone in a white lab coat with a confused expression on his face. The people who worked in the lab almost never visited the actual sewage lines like the general workers did, so this piqued my interest enough for me to check it out myself. As I approached the gathering of people, I could hear an apprehensive tone filling the air, as lab technicians and laborers like me all wore worried expressions. I had to push people out of the way in order to actually see what was going on. To say it shocked me would be an understatement. The water looked like black pitch, glassy like obsidian, and viscous like molasses. It smelled like burning plastic. This would have been enough of a conundrum if it weren't for the fact that these weren't the only things. The surface of the water swelled and wriggled, and it took me a moment to realize that there were probably hundreds of thousands of worms squirming under the surface. In fact, as I looked at it more, it seemed that the blackish water was probably just coating the worms, and as we tried to figure out what the hell was going on, we realized that they weren't just on top of the water. The main channel is about 20 feet deep, and as we tried to separate the masses of worms with a large stick, we discovered that the worms went all the way down to the bottom. Eventually, the main supervisor of the facility told us all to go home and that everything would be fine the next day. We laughed at him, although, surely enough, by the next shift, everything was back to normal. To say the majority of my co-workers and I were seriously confounded by this would be doing a disservice to the word, but there was one co-worker of mine that was hardly phased by this at all. I only really worked with this guy for a couple of months. One day he just didn't show up for work, and ever since then, I've never actually heard anything about him. I'm not about to give out his real name, so I'll call him Vasily. He clearly wasn't from here. His thick Slavic accent was enough to give that away almost immediately. He told us he was from Kiev and that he moved here with his wife and three kids, although I never once heard him talk about them at all. He certainly was quite the character, and even though this sounds really mean, I tried to avoid him unless it was absolutely necessary for me to talk to him. I wasn't alone in my aversion to Vasily, though. 
In fact, the people who I worked with referred to him as the vampire due to his unfortunate and uncanny resemblance to the monster in Nosferatu. His head was bald and his face was so angular it looked like his cheekbones were cut out of stone. His eyes were so dark that they looked totally black and his trademark wide-eyed, almost predatory gaze felt piercing enough to bore holes in you. He was around six foot six and his whole body was just really long. He reminded me of an arachnid. His mannerisms didn't really help his cause. He was the type of person to stand just a little too close and make a little bit too much eye contact during a conversation, and every once in a while I would spot him staring at me as I worked on something by myself. Despite this, he actually was fairly harmless and was quite the hard worker. Part of me had a suspicion that he was on the spectrum or something, and I felt really bad for him. I even planned to work up the courage to try and get him invited with the rest of my co-workers to hit some bars, although he politely refused the offer and waved his veiny hand away, claiming that he didn't like beer. Since I was new, my only experiences with him were basically ones after the whole worm thing, but according to my co-workers, he acted much stranger and much happier than normal after the incident. One of them, let's call him Travis, even heard him laughing his head off near the main intake channel during a night shift right before it happened. Of course, he eventually packed his shit and left without any sort of notice, which prompted the supervisor to call the police. He was never, ever late, and my boss feared that something had happened to him. Once the police broke into the studio apartment he lived in, they found nothing. All the rooms were empty, and it was like nobody had ever lived there. Travis actually accompanied the cops on their wellness check, and he claimed that while he was inside of Vasily's apartment, there was just the faintest smell of burning plastic, although Travis was always the type to embellish. In the weeks, months, and years after this, my co-workers and I did our best to try and rationalize this as much as possible. Adrian, one of the only lab techs who ever talked to the general workers, theorized that the black sludge was somehow a diluted form of the fertilizer that we make. He hypothesized that there was some sort of runoff, and as the nutrient-rich solution mixed with and thickened the sewage floating through the main intake channel, worms and the surrounding dirt swam into it to eat the poop and dirt mix. It was a theory that my co-workers and I had to accept. I mean, looking back, it was so full of shit, but... We had to believe something. Of course, not everything I've found has been so strange, although these things are still really unexplainable. One time, while I was monitoring the bar screen, I noticed that it was almost straining, like it was carrying a really heavy load. Upon further investigation, I found out that it was carrying a really heavy load. It was a fucking bowling ball. A 16-pound bowling ball. I really, really don't know how someone managed to fit an entire fucking bowling ball into the sewage system, but there it was, all shiny, despite the fact that it was coated in a thick layer of last night's dinner. We still have the ball. It actually sits in the room where the bar screen can be watched next to the poop money jar. I think that the title of the jar is self-explanatory. When I first joined, it was at around $522. Now it's at around $876. The bar screen room is my primary position in the facility since even though all of our noses are desensitized, I can actually stand the smell of poop for hours and hours on end, a feat which most people who work here aren't exactly able to do without getting a little bit of fresh air. It might seem silly, but 
My position is important for several reasons. Mainly, it's just a good safeguard to make sure the screen's actually working. If, for whatever reason, the screen malfunctions, the flow needs to be redirected immediately. If any of the stuff that normally gets filtered out ends up stuck in the basins or in the pumps, blockages can form, and when you're dealing with thousands of gallons a minute, you cannot have any sort of blockages. My job also serves a sort of secondary purpose, though. Criminals tend to flush evidence down the toilet if law enforcement is on their tail, and it's our job to recover said evidence and report the items to the police. I've probably uncovered untold amounts of weed and thousands of crack pipes during my 14-year tenure. There's a normal amount of this stuff found pretty much every year, but I noticed there was a sharp increase during the years of 2008 to 2010. Obviously, this lines up with the recession, and as a result of increased poverty and unemployment, our area, which already isn't really a white picket fence suburb, had a dramatic crime increase. I didn't actually feel much of the pain of an economic slump, though, since the city's always going to need people to deal with sewage, but I certainly realized it to be true when I discovered that my MPV was missing one morning. To be fair, I did leave the windows open, but never in my mind did I think that anyone would want to steal that old hunk of shit. I was wrong. All of this really did culminate in one event, though. I had arrived in my new Civic this time, and as I manned my post and prepared myself for another day of watching the screen filter stuff out, I noticed that there were a couple of brownish boxes that were bundled in tape. They floated at the top of the sewage, and as I watched one after another swim by, I made sure to radio in the supervisor. We recovered 40 little boxes of this stuff, and surprise, surprise, they were kilos of cocaine. Some people from the DEA arrived and they tried desperately to figure out where the kilos came from, although by the point they arrived to us, the poop had degraded everything to a point that no arrests could be made from the cocaine we found. They told us that the stuff was between $795,000 and $1.2 million. There was a notable police presence on the site for about a week after the incident. I suppose they were trying to see if any more kilos revealed themselves, to no avail. This annoyed me at first since they made an officer sit right next to me during every shift and it was kind of frustrating to hear someone continuously complain about the smell for hours on end. Eventually, the cops gave up and they left the site with empty hands, which was really damn convenient because about six days after they left, I found something else. It wasn't a kilo of cocaine. The news was all over the city and search efforts were widespread. A blonde-haired, fair-skinned, eight-year-old girl was drawing with some chalk in her front yard when she seemingly vanished out of thin air. There were no leads, no evidence, and only one real witness. One person thought they saw an unfamiliar beige Chevy Astro speeding through the neighborhood in which the girl lived around the time of the disappearance, but that was all the detectives had. I remember watching the news during this, and since I have a bit of interest in true crime, I followed it extensively. I watched as the father of this little girl got thinner and thinner with each news appearance, and I can still hear how broken his voice sounded when he begged whoever took his little sweetheart to give her back safely. Eventually, the news stopped running stories about the little girl, and I just assumed that whatever had happened was done and that she was already dead. She had been missing for about five months when I found it. It was a heavy, dark blue comforter, and as I put it aside and inspected it, 
I realized that it was covered in some dark brownish stain that wasn't feces. As I unfolded the blanket and felt around it, my fingers brushed something kind of hard. As I scrutinized the small hard bits, they looked like little white pebbles. Unsure of what to do, I radioed my supervisor again, who called the police. I was rather unamused at this. If anything, they'd be snooping around the facility again, and that was something I really didn't look forward to. On the other hand, though, the blanket was seriously out of place, and I knew that something was really wrong. My fears were confirmed when I saw detectives from the FBI canvassing the whole place a couple of days later. Interrogation rooms really have some sort of magic that makes you feel like you're guilty of something, even when you're not. I'd have to say that those three hours were some of the worst in my life, and as a stern-faced man in a suit questioned me, I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt my stomach drop even further when they told me about the nature of their questioning. The stain was predictably blood, which isn't really something that causes too much alarm for me. Tampons obviously exist, and sometimes you genuinely just cut yourself on accident. Not every blood stain is murder, after all. It was what they told me next, which made me really feel sick. Those little white pebbles were identified as teeth teeth that most likely came from a child's mouth. DNA evidence proved that the blood and teeth belonged to a little eight-year-old girl who had gone missing from a couple months ago. There was also an unidentified male whose DNA was found on the blanket. One tag was still on the comforter, and it was traced back to a purchase in 2006 by a realtor and a mother of three. When she was questioned, she claimed that she had given the blanket to her youngest son after he moved out of the house. Of course, he was questioned next, and from what I've heard about the case, that sick son of a bitch barely lasted 30 minutes before he admitted to everything. Even if he said nothing, they already had a good case on the guy. His DNA matched the unknown male's DNA, and the little girl's hair was found in his garage and on his clothes. He had sold a beige Chevy Astro on Craigslist about two months prior to his arrest, and his new car had traces of her blood all over it. He eventually told them where the body was, on the condition that he could escape the death penalty, and eventually they found her. She was buried under a massive oak tree in a forest preserve 20 miles away from the treatment facility. By the time the cops found her, she was already mostly decomposed, but they were able to tell how she died, and by using dental records found out that the teeth and the blanket matched her as well. She had several stab wounds to the chest and a post-mortem blunt injury to her face which knocked out her teeth. There was also a great deal of internal trauma. That man had raped her several times and kept her locked in his house for a couple of months before finally killing her. According to his own testimony, she had tried to escape and in a fit of rage he stabbed her 14 times and wrapped her corpse in a blue comforter. The killer said that during a particularly harsh turn, her body slid and slammed into the right side door handle in the back seat, busting her face open. He eventually buried her in the closest wooded area, then tossed the blanket into a nearby stream. He was smart enough to know that his best bet was to cast the blanket as far away from her actual burial site in order to distance the evidence as much as possible. What he didn't know was that the stream was actually used as a wastewater channel from a car factory and that it led directly to us. I think almost half the people working at the facility at the time quit, simply due to the media circus, 
and the fact that there was some sort of inexorable secondhand guilt that permeated through us. I remember for the very first time feeling that I was totally useless. I thought back to my initial reaction and hated myself for it. Some girl had just fucking died and I was a bit more concerned about cops being a headache. I actually had to testify in court along with a couple of my other co-workers and as a result we got to watch the whole trial. The little girl's father looked like a skeleton at this point and his eyes were always glinting with tears. I couldn't possibly imagine what he was going through. The guy got his wish, and instead of being sentenced to death, he was given life without the opportunity of parole. Ever since then, my co-workers and I rarely do anything outside of work. It's just demoralizing now, at least for me. Although I guess there are other reasons for our chemistry being really bad, especially after what happened last year. Travis had always been the jovial type, and frankly, he pretty much was the only person who kept my spirits out of the gutters for too long. Without him, I don't really know what I would have done after the murder. Of course, he was still the type to tell a couple of white lies every once in a while, so when he told me he was having a son, I really didn't believe him at first. It wasn't until he showed me photos of his wife's ultrasound. I was really happy for him. Frankly, it was a nice turn for the positive, all things considered. He named his son Blake, and oh my fucking god, he never stopped talking about Blake for about a year and a half after he was born. Of course, I was genuinely happy for him, but the man knew how to talk and talk for hours. After about a year and a half, though, I noticed that he didn't bring up Blake nearly as much. I attributed this to the fact that he had finally run out of things to tell us and wrote it off as unimportant. Every year, we have a bring-your-kid-to-work day. This is a holiday that is normally only honored by the people who work in the labs. Even if I had a kid, I would never want my child sitting next to me in the bar screen room, which is why it was a surprise that Travis was actually going to bring his kid over. I remember when he told us that his son had a keen interest in seeing what we did here, and I remember thinking it was a joke. But I stopped that when, for the very first time, I noticed that he almost looked nervous. As the day got closer, I could tell that he was worried about it, and it certainly did weird me out that Travis, of all people, would be so uncomfortable. I initially attributed his fear to the fact that he was scared about what his kid would think of the place, but when the day actually arrived, I understood why he was scared. There was a reason why he didn't really say much about his son. I watched as Blake rocked back and forth and flapped his hands fervently, occasionally making a strange noise or hitting himself in the head. For this reason, he wore a dark blue helmet, which shielded him from his own blows. He was wearing a weighted vest, and he clutched a yellow bunny doll in his left hand. I knew this array of symptoms well, mainly since I've seen him in my own sister. I could tell that Travis was incredibly scared. He undoubtedly felt all of our eyes on him and his son, and I began to feel truly horrible. Part of me almost wanted to try and convince the supervisor not to allow this for Travis's own sake. He looked almost sick as he waved to us, trying and failing to sound like his normal cheery self as his son hit himself in the face. Travis was experiencing a great deal of embarrassment, and it was awful to watch, even from afar. Although I didn't voice this concern, Blake could have been autistic, but he was still a young boy and Travis was his father, and if Travis wanted to take his son to work as a nice gesture, then damn it, he should be allowed to do so. 
I think that it was six hours into my shift when I heard the radio call. The day was painfully normal, despite the fact that I noticed little kids walking all over the place with their fathers in tow, but all that changed really damn quick. It was Travis on the other end, and he sounded like he had just seen a ghost. He was bent over, wrenching on something, and when he looked back, Blake was gone. We all mobilized as much as possible and began to scan the whole facility. I even remember giving Travis a playful punch in an attempt to calm him. We'd find him soon. Of course we would. We did find him eventually. He was in one of the secondary clarifiers. It turns out that bacteria that decompose poop also do a good job at decomposing people, and even though poor Blake was only in there for a good 40 minutes, he had already started to bloat. It took another 10 minutes before he was finally retrieved from the large pool of murky water. I did my best not to look, and I tried to shut my eyes, but my morbid curiosity got to me, and as they pulled a white sheet over Blake's head, I spotted a now brown bunny still clutched in his left hand. On some nights, I'll hear the way Travis screamed that day, and it'll wake me up and keep me up. I've heard terrible things, but hearing him beg God to give his son back, that's just the worst. I'm convinced there's no greater pain for a parent or for anyone than losing their child. We all watched the security cam footage. I felt my stomach churn as I watched a small figure walk up to the clarifier. As he walked along the balcony that's above the water, he dropped his little stuffed animal, and as it sank into the turbid water, he jumped in after it. Blake was seven years old, he had autism, and he couldn't swim. Couple this with the fact that he was wearing a weighted vest in order to keep him calm, and you can picture what happened next. He sank like a rock. It almost pained me more when I noticed a larger figure walking near the clarifier after Blake had sunk. It was Travis looking around wildly. This was about three minutes after Blake sank, and if Travis knew where his son was, he could have easily saved him. Obviously, Travis didn't really come back to work for a while after that, so I was tasked with covering his shift, something that I was happy to do. Travis normally worked at night monitoring the clarifiers, making sure that airflow, temperature, and nutrient content all looked right. I wasn't terribly experienced at this, but I figured that I'd eventually get the hang of it, and after a while I was good enough to be left alone without someone watching me, and as Travis recovered psychologically, I found my new home at the clarifiers. I specifically avoided the clarifier in which Blake drowned, only going over the balcony quickly before going into the control room to check on how the levels were. I probably did this for two months until Travis finally got well enough to come back to work, by that, I mean he didn't break down crying whenever he stepped foot in the facility. If it were me, I would have just quit, but Travis had been working there since he was 18, and for longer than me. This was basically his whole life, and it's easier said than done to just up and move on, I guess. Every time he worked clarifiers, he still made me check on the one his son died in. He might have pulled himself together enough to work, but he certainly was not all okay up in his head. Understandably, his whole demeanor changed, and he went from being the class clown to being almost as withdrawn as the vampire. The change made me feel quite bad for him, although each time I tried to talk to him, he was aloof and uncaring. I stopped really trying to talk to him after a while. I figured that he'd want his space, and 
all things considered, I'd give him his space gladly. I think it was this space that I gave him mentally that allowed me not to break down when I heard the news that he had taken his own life. I've always hated funerals, although I think I hated this one the most, simply due to the fact that the whole event was just stained with Travis's guilt. His wife almost reminded me of the little girl's father, and his whole family just looked horrible. Pretty much everyone I worked with attended, even most of the lab techs showed up. Our supervisor gave him a eulogy, and I really did my best to say a couple of nice things about him, although my words were broken and softly spoken. I remember vomiting and passing out as soon as I got home, and when I woke up, I drank myself back to sleep again. The whole thing was just so wrong, on so many levels. Travis was probably one of my best friends at this point, and he was always such a good-spirited person. The fact that he was the one who was dealt the short stick in the game of life was just so unfair. Once again, I was the one who had to cover his place until we could find and train someone to cover his spot again. The facility felt empty without him, and I just hated every second of my job because of it. But I did continue on. Travis would have been disappointed if I left now. Eventually, I got accustomed to the absence, and even though it still felt wrong, I think I got used to it. That was until the month anniversary of his death. I was in the control room, monitoring the clarifiers like normal, when I noticed that one of the secondary clarifiers had a strange alert. The temperature was reading 35 Fahrenheit. Just as a bit of background, the actual night air was 75 Fahrenheit. Water is normally colder than air, that's not unusual. But 40 whole degrees colder? That was unheard of. I initially suspected a faulty sensor, but then I remembered that we had replaced them all no longer than three months prior, and the sensors we have can last for decades. The air was muggy, and it roused a bit of sweat on my face as I ran over to the clarifier in which Blake had drowned. I knew something was going on when I noticed that all the lights around it were off. I clicked on a flashlight and pressed on, breathing heavily as I climbed up the metal stairs and got myself onto the balcony. I ran along the metal grate floor towards the temperature sensor, and as the beam of the flashlight bounced around, I saw just the slightest hint of yellow in the water. I aimed the flashlight at the yellow and felt sick to my stomach. It was a yellow bunny rabbit doll floating in the water. I whipped the flashlight all over the place and spotted more and more of the bunnies, their black button eyes staring at me. I think I screamed, but as I did, I could feel the grated metal underneath my feet begin to crumble. Our facility is about 50 years old. The balconies were rusted quite a bit, but they never really seemed weak or unsafe to stand on. I remember how cold the water was and how the murkiness swallowed up any sort of vision I could have had underneath the water. The balcony was about 15 feet above the actual surface of the water, and so when I hit the surface, it disoriented me quite considerably and knocked the breath out of me. I realized that I didn't know which way was up anymore. As my diaphragm tensed up in shock, I began to flail my arms all around, doing my best to get my bearings fruitlessly. Eventually, after my body began to hunger oxygen even more than before, I just went limp and let my body float up with the bubbles of the air. I took a deep breath as I surfaced, and I hurriedly swam to the edge of the basin. Once I was back on dry land, I peered out into the clarifier again, and all the yellow bunnies were gone. 
After a couple of days, all the balconies were replaced with new ones in order to prevent such a thing from happening again, and the temperature sensor was replaced too, although it was found to be in perfect working order when they took it out. It was safe to say that my position was considerably cushier than before after the accident. During my struggle to escape, I really fucked up my hand on some brick, and considering that I was swimming in poop water, I wasn't shocked when it got infected a day later. In an attempt to keep me from suing, they bumped up my pay and cut my hours a bit. Not that any of it even mattered to me. That was 11 months ago, and today, after a long time coming, I finally put in my two weeks' notice. Frankly, I should have quit a long time ago. I wasn't really moving up in the corporate ladder like I'd anticipated, and now that Travis was dead, the job was just depressing. And that's ignoring all the fucked up shit that happens here. I only work on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and some people work here six days a week, ten hours a day. I really do wonder if they've seen anything else. I'm fairly certain that they have. Right now, I'm basically planning to move to a different, smaller treatment facility. With my knowledge here, I think a smaller place would be a bit nicer. I just hope that I can distance myself as much as possible, although I know that's basically impossible at this point. Because every single time I drink some water, or flush my toilet, or basically do anything, I know where that water came from, and I know where it will return. I know that it's been laced with worms, cocaine, and murder evidence. I know that, in a way, all of the refuse of society, just like the refuse that we defecate, has ended up where I worked. And now you do too. Plus, I've noticed that my apartment now smells like burning plastic for some reason. concludes episode 34 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>